welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, Enrique Kool-Aid. I'm Mariah Rose. Oh, nice. Kool-Aid does have a K. That, <laughs> that works. I, I accept it. Okay, thank you. That one's going on your tombstone for sure. So, what's going on? Mm. Um, well, it's been a year of quarantine. We've officially hit the one-year mark. <laughs> I. You came across a message that... Was it? I mean, you don't tweet. So what was that? Like, I don't know where it was. It might have been on Facebook. I have Facebook, guys. I'm sorry. My grandma's on there. And that's the only way I communicate with her. So there it is. Anyway, a year ago, I wrote, oh, no, we we have three weeks off of school. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. Oh, my gosh. And meanwhile, our children are halfway or more than halfway through a year of entirely online schooling that's right wow we did not know what we were in for we were not prepared but here we are and now it's just a way of life it is and i think you and i've kind of talked about this before i think what we're going to take away like great depression wise is toilet paper hoarding yeah we've never been toilet paper hoarders nor were we at the beginning of this but now I find I like steadily have like one Costco pack of extra, <laughs> like just in case. I remember in my day when we ran out of toilet paper. Well, you know, when you live in the actual desert and you think, you know, everybody else maybe thinks, well, I'll go grab some leaves if it's desperate. We've only got cactus. Yeah, if you're by the ocean, like Judge Dredd, you grab some seashells. Take a... Oh, I was thinking about dipping your butt in the water. Oh, wait. Was that Judge Dredd or was that Demolition Man? Oh, I was going to... I don't know. I think they're the same ones. Going to get some hate mail. They're the exact same movie. They are not the exact same movie. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we are not talking movies. We are talking 80s. So, oh, by the way, welcome to this podcast if you have never joined us before i just assumed where are we who are we who are we we are laser graves a podcast about the 80s yep so we're talking today a pop culture moment an event to say the least oh yeah and that is definitely grounded in the 80s so it's fair game even though it bled into the 90s a little bit this is 100 percent uh started in the 80s in all its glory i think the bulk of it was 80s it really is yeah. yeah So this week, buckle up, braid your hair, put on your shoulder pads, uh, do your skinny, skinny tight pants. Get your best dance moves ready. Because, girl, you know it's true. <laughs> We're talking about Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Oh, that's good. We'll get into it. Millie Vanilli, were you a fan? No, I didn't really. I mean, in the at this time period, it was only New Kids on the Block. Oh yeah, this is right around. Well, it just predates it a little bit. I think they started in the. It would have been right around this time yeah. that I was all New Kids all the time, and that was really my crossover from my parents' music, because prior to that, it had been like uh, John Denver. Mm-hmm. And that's it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Some Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You really had the boys coming after you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Duh. <laughs> what about you? Were you a fan? Obviously. You looked exactly like them. Well, I dressed like them, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. This was... I was... I was hardcore into 80s metal at this point, and... 
just kind of more well not like metal metal but like priest and and iron maid and all that kind of stuff so this was not my jam however i remember the videos and mm-hmm. i didn't have an opinion i mean i thought okay they're doing their thing i didn't yeah. think they were lame i didn't think that they were amazing but they were a phenomenon yeah and i will say even at a young age especially rob i was like what is with this guy because he We'll get into it, but yeah. <laughs> needless to say, yes, they were male models. Yeah. Um, yeah, his face is striking. Very well, good looking yeah. men. So, and that is part of the story that we're going to get into today. Also, I will say that you did have at least one fashion touchstone in common. Uh, we recently have looked through some of your childhood <laughs> photos, and I have seen the spandex. I, yeah, around the same time, I wore a lot of spandex for no reason. Not spandex like Milli Vanilli spandex, but just. Like, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, everybody wore those, like, neon spandex biker shorts. Yeah. I don't know why. I kind of want to do it again. And I was on vacation. We went to Connecticut to go see my sister. And for some reason, in every single photo, (laughs) I'm wearing (laughs) spandex shorts and a beret. Oh, I had a beret with a little pin that said, mess with the best dialect to rest. (laughs) And this long rat tail that I thought was really cool. That at that point in time, I was wearing like uh, puff paint shirts. Okay, my favorite one had a beach scene. Yeah, and it was like silly people at the beach, but in puff paints. And then I would wear spandex also. Man, those were good times. It was so easy. Really good times. Just so easy. Well, they had the fashion. They had the look. And you know what? This was all on par for the eighties. Because mm-hmm. in the eighties, here's the thing. Go back. Uh, a couple episodes ago and listen to our episode on the history of MTV. That's a very good kind of precursor to this episode. Mm -hmm. If you haven't already, I would recommend it because this is an absolute 100% product of MTV. Yeah, we'll get into it. The 80s, what shifted from the 70s to the 80s was the image because now musicians on a global level were being seen and being very much judged on their looks. I think prior to this... Uh, You could be pretty good looking, but it didn't really matter. You didn't have to be, like, really good looking. And in the 80s, our pop stars needed to be, like, fashionable and really, like, young and hip and stuff like that. So that was part of the reason this came to be, was you needed to have the look of the 80s. But also, something that had already pre-existed but was really amping up, and and then by the uh, mid-90s it's going to go into full effect, was this overproduced kind of plastic quality of pop music you know pop music with madonna and michael jackson and all that did start to become very heavily produced there was still some sense of artistry but by the late 80s when you start to get new kids on the block and the boy bands really it starts to become very just kind of uh, it's just a business it's an absolute business yeah polished and like very plastic but that was the trend yeah yeah and you know Tiffany and Debbie Gibson they all had that too yeah but I really do think Millie Vanilli was was like kind of the template for what would come mm. I was going to ask you this and I've heard a couple people mention this and, and bring it up they really kind of are the first of the new era of boy bands in a way because it was all about the image and singing and dancing and girl craze not like yeah. the Beatles and the monkeys but more like new kids on the block and in sync and all that yeah it's kind of that same idea but it's it feels a little bit like they were and I could be wrong here because I wasn't that age but it feels like they were reaching towards an audience that was a little older like women in their 20s as opposed to the teen groups mm-hmm. of like 
your traditional boy boy band. Yeah, I would agree. It was a, a little bit more mature audience. Like and, club scene kind of stuff. And uh, boy, did they get them. Oh, yes. <laughs> Whoa. Well, for those of you who don't know, we're going to try and go in a nice chronological fashion to not give anything away. Although I'd be shocked if you didn't know because it's I don't know. just a cultural touchstone at this point. I don't think so. I think people who were born after this or even in the early 90s would maybe not even be aware. That's true. And that's part of the reason we wanted to do this was it's just a really interesting yeah. um, event that happened in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was huge. But oh, yes. yeah, it was everything. But before we can even go further, so people who don't know Millie Vanilli, let's kind of just paint the picture of who we're even dealing with. Okay. So Millie Vanilli was actually made up of just two people. When you watch their videos, and I highly recommend that you do, uh, it looks like they're a band, but really it's just two men. And I think we should get to know them a little bit before we dive into their full story. Yeah, those videos are pretty good, too. We were just jamming to them before we started recording. Yeah, we had to hype ourselves up. Yeah, it was really good, man. (laughs) Okay, so let's start with Rob. His name is Rob Pilatus, and he was born in New York. So you'd think he's American, but no. He grew up in Munich, which was West Germany at Mm -hmm. the time. His father was an African-American soldier, and his mother was a German stripper. So I would like to take a minute here to talk about what it was like growing up black in West Germany, because I yeah. really was quite curious about this. And this will inform their their story. Yes, absolutely. So clearly I am a white chick. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I have no personal insight, but I was wondering what it was like. So I found this really fascinating article by Thought Company. And they mentioned that in Colin Powell's autobiography called My American Journey, he wrote of his tour of duty in West Germany in 1958 as a period of like greater freedom for black Americans who were really surprised what life was like in West Germany. So they could date whoever they wanted. They could go wherever they wanted. It wasn't like separated or segregated. They could date white women and basically just enjoy all of the freedoms that were not afforded to them in their own country. It was very similar to Paris. You know, that that was that appeal, too. And also keep in mind, for those of you who maybe aren't historians or into history, why why you're saying West Germany is because Germany was divided. We're talking about Cold War era Germany when Milli Vanilli comes to be, which is West Germany, East Germany. And those are two very different worlds. Absolutely. But, okay, so a lot of African-American uh, men came over and they fathered children with German women who were very obviously white. And there was some issue. It wasn't just like all peachy keen over there. There was interracial relationships that uh, the the fruits of those rev- relationships, these children were discriminated against. And in the, I don't know, the best of times, they were called occupation children. Really? They had a term. Interesting. Yeah, there's actually worse terms, but I'm not going to go into it. But these kids did, and in fact, experience a lot of discrimination. So on a side note, and this has nothing to do with anything, but I found it interesting, so I'm going to share it here. Uh, Germans stopped polling on race after World War II. Really? Yeah. Huh. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if they've picked it up again. 
Interesting that they would be the ones to um, Mm -hmm. not consider race. I think that there is a very good reason. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't make it easy to track down our citizens and kill them if we decide we we have a problem. Focus on that. (laughs) So they, they didn't. I thought that was really interesting. Anyway, let's get back to Rob. He did not grow up with his parents. He was born in New York, found his way back to Munich, but he was given up and lived in an orphanage until he was four. Uh, and he was fully German. like Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he may have been born in New York, but no, this dude's no, 100% no. German. Absolutely. Uh, and obviously, he faced racial discrimination in school. They gave him horrible nicknames that I'm not going to repeat here, but he definitely you know, felt different, felt other because he was in Germany and he was different than the mo- most of the people there. Yeah. And uh, so so our listeners know if you're looking at a picture of Millie Vanilli, so you know which one we're talking about. The German one, Rob, Rob. is the um, the one with the very striking, striking blue eyes. They can see into your soul right now. I don't know where you are across space and time beyond the grave. He can look into your soul. It was intense. But just so you kind of know which one we're talking about. Yes. And I was curious about his adopted family, but I couldn't find much on them. But he did leave their home as a teenager. So I suspect he was very unhappy there. I don't know if it was because he had different dreams for his life or whatever. I just didn't find a whole lot of information about that. But he found work as a break dancer and obviously a model. Go look at both of these guys and you'll be like, obviously they're models. So he did that. He was actually also a backup singer for a group called Wind. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've seen their their performance, but they performed in the 1987 Eurovision competition, which it's like a whole different world. We're Americans. We don't get Eurovision. Oh, no. This is a big deal. I don't know why Australia is involved. (laughs) Whatever. Why not? Well, I mean, I, I guess through connection to England, but then is Canada involved? I, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised because I don't know. I, later on in the episode, maybe we'll get to it. But okay, it, Canada had a connection that America kind of got overlooked with, and it was okay. really interesting. Yeah, I mean, we're connected to England. Why don't we get to do Eurovision? Well, there was a representative from Australia that wasn't supposed to be there. But what happened was they were at the airport and they said, why are you not getting on your plane? And the the Australian looked over at the other person. Oh, and, my and he gosh. Said, <laughs> the flight's been delight. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I was like, where is this going? This is only a, a deep cut joke for longtime listeners who understand what a dork you are. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Okay, so Rob was a backup singer for a group called Wind. Note that I said he was a singer. They performed in 1987 Eurovision, and actually the band got second place. And if you watch their competition, you can see Rob. He is wearing all yellow. He's holding a guitar. I don't know why, but his shirt's unbuttoned way far down, and he's doing a dance that's very familiar to Millie Vanilli. Was he playing the guitar or pretending to play the guitar? I think he was just pretending. He was described as a backup singer. Okay, just, I just just wondering. I I mean, I'm, I'm no musician. For a friend. I love music. I love musicians, but honestly, you could just pretend to play, and I'd be like, "Great job." Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's go and meet uh, Fabrice or Fab. His full name is Fabrice Maxime Sylvain Morvan. 
Mm-hmm. There's a mouthful. So let's go with Fab. Fab's easier to do. He was born in Paris in 1966. Oui. What? <laughs> C'est vrai. His father was an architect and his mother was a pharmacist. So his family was okay. They, mm-hmm. they were not in poverty at that time. Although he later does experience poverty when he goes on his own. Oh, yeah. Um, but <laughs> That's part of the story. <laughs> but he couldn't, uh, or he didn't grow up in poverty. And I couldn't find a ton on his early years, but I did discover that he had been training as a, a trampoline athlete. <laughs> yeah. I So I listened to an, a really great interview with him. It was oh, a long one. Did he talk about it? Yeah, and he did. Well, the guy said, did you play sports growing up? And he said, well, I was on the trampoline. I thought that was a really European answer. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess trampoline athlete is a thing. Like, he was planning to make a career. <laughs> out of trampoline? Yeah. I mean, sure. that's like saying I'm going to be Peter Pan, but okay. Uh, anyway, he hurt his neck, and obviously this is what happens when you are on a trampoline for any length of time. You will hurt your neck. If you mm-hmm. are listening to this podcast on a trampoline, you're hurting your neck. I, it's going to happen. We should make a trampoline playlist on Spotify. Laser Gray's trampolines. So there would be uh, Jump from Van Halen. Oh. Jump from Criss Cross. <laughs> jump Around. Oh, yeah. House of Pain. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know there were so many songs with right, Jump. I'll, I'll stop there, but maybe we'll do that. I don't think. I think that's it. It's a three-song playlist. <laughs> you just play it over and over. Okay. Um, anyway, so he broke his neck. He broke his neck? Not broke. Did I say he broke his neck? Maybe that's what I heard. No, he hurt his neck. Okay, there's a difference. Well, I mean, you can break your neck and still be fine. Right, but saying you broke your neck versus saying you hurt your neck is I don't know. It's like if you hit your elbow on the wall and you're like, oh, I broke my elbow. It's the same, right? Kind of. There's nothing... (laughs) Nothing to be seen here. It's French storytelling, right? Okay. Anyway, he hurt his neck... And after his injury, he decided that maybe the glamorous life of trampoline athlete was not for him. (laughs) You think he wore a jumper when he was on the trampoline? (laughs) Sorry, I just can't get over it. I'm really fascinated with trampoline culture. I wonder if they like later became like parkour people. You know what? I recently watched. It was. uh, Okay, we're way deep in in the whole quarantine world so anything goes but i recently got sucked into some weird youtube channel of a trampoline athlete trying to teach a bodybuilder how to do a trampoline (laughs) (laughs) i'll watch that it was interesting okay cool okay anyway after trampoline life let him down he went to live with his I like how we're weaving this into the Milly Vanilli story as though it has any relevance whatsoever. Hair and trampolines. He went to live with his grandfather in the Caribbean or Caribbean. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You do what you do. It's Caribbean. Car- Car- Caribbean. Yeah. I don't know. I Caribbean say queen. You know what? That song, uh-huh. Ca- Caribbean Queen, uh-huh. uh, it was, I only, well, I only was exposed to it as a child on one of those infomercials that says like, um, you know, a little sample of like, don't worry, be happy, Caribbean Queen, and then one more, and it was 8675309, and so I can't think of that song without thinking of 867. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Ying Yang. He went to live with his grandfather. Uh, his... <laughs> Grandfather is noted as both a musician 
and a fisherman, but... Oh, I like that idea of, like, some dude just sitting on the, on the shore. With <laughs> Singing to the fish. Like an accordion. <laughs> uh, do what you will with that information. Fabrice Fab stayed there honing his musical abilities until he was ready to return to Europe. But he didn't go back to Paris. He went to Munich when he was 18. I Yeah, because he wanted to see things. He was bored he wanted to get out and see the world young guy yeah that's how he explained it was he just was ready to kind of explore and get out there he was young he was handsome he was talented and i would think munich would be really fun like why not get out there so fate guided rob and fab to meet at a dance seminar which was being held at a uh, club in munich they really hit it off and seemed to sort of commiserate because they'd both grown up in a predominantly white European culture. So I think they really came together that way. They shared similar interests. Yeah, the interviewer, when I was listening, he did say, he asked him, you know, bluntly, were there any other black kids in Munich during yeah. this time? And he said, absolutely not. And that was a huge part was yeah. that they, they did come together. Uh, I think Rob was a little older. And they were running... Just barely. I think like two or three years. And they were running in the same circle. So they kept running into each mm-hmm. other. And he was really impressed by Rob's break dancing. So he thought he was really cool. Mm-hmm. But they did have that in common. And so they kind of just latched on to each other. I, I actually looked at the numbers. And there are some discrepancies. But it was the numbers of black people living in Munich or in Germany at that West Germany at that time were incredibly low. So that is definitely believable. Yeah. And I just, I like this idea because I think keep that in mind as we get through the rest of this story is they really did have each other. This is what started this was it was like they were in it together Mm -hmm. and, and they were going to, they were going to get through all this together. Absolutely. And I think that it's neat that it started so early on. It did. And so they started to try and find work as backup singers They did modeling, they were dancers, and they eventually went on to create Millie Vanilli. Now, I was wondering where they got the name and found that they said the original, or they originally said that it came from the Turkish word for, or words for positive energy. Okay. It's a load of BS. Uh, I guess it's untrue. I don't speak Turkish, but we actually have a friend. I should have checked her. Yeah. But uh, apparently this is untrue. The truth is more likely that they were inspired by the ba- the British band Scritti Politti. They like that. I didn't know they created the name. Yeah. Because there's been conflicting reports that the name had been created for them. Mm. But this makes more sense if they did create the name as to how they would have been discovered. That's what I found. But, you know, it's different people saying their own versions of this history. So I don't know that there is really a true or accurate answer. This is what I found a few times. So I went with it. <laughs> well, uh, either way, that's the name. And they actually did get a German label to uh, sign them. They sold a few thousand copies, which that's huge. Yeah. We'll if find you're out a later, teenager. It is. Yeah. Of their first album. But it was actually kind of a false start. The real story of Millie Vanilli begins with a rather fateful meeting. Yeah, so keep in mind that these guys really, from the very beginning, they just wanted to sing. They wanted to play music and sing and perform. They wanted to be entertainers. Yeah. They had a dance background too, but they fully planned on singing yeah. and writing their own music. They really spent a lot of time at this one club and it was like the place to be. So they would do sets there and stuff like that. And they did start to kind of get a little bit of a name for themselves, not only because... They had some talent. Keep that in mind, too. They, they can sing. 
but also because they had the look. So this look, mm-hmm. when we think of Millie Vanilli with the long braids and the, the clothes, that's mm-hmm. their look. That was not manufactured. That that was all them. They had their, their look down. Mm-hmm. So word got around pretty quickly in Germany that there was this little duo doing their own thing, and they were cool. And that made its way to a very important figure in this story, a guy named Frank Farian, who was a big-time producer. He, you know, went on to work with people like Meatloaf and all that kind of stuff. But he had his finger on the pulse. He was already extremely wealthy at the time. And he was looking for a new hot act in Germany to be able to kind of promote and put money behind and make his fortune. So through an encounter of a mutual friend, kind of they got a meeting. That's how it goes. They walk in and they meet this guy, Frank Farian. Before I even get into what happened, yeah. we need to back up and, and talk about who this dude was. Who he was is quite he? the character. I really avoided this. I knew a little bit, so I'm very excited. Frank was a very talented musician. He, he was a songwriter and a singer. And <laughs> in the 60s, had a, a very quick kind of career, brief career as, as a pop, you know, German pop act. Is he German? He's German, fully okay. German. Although he is, you know, this short, red-haired, pasty-skinned German. This is who we're dealing with. What is wrong with red hair, pasty? Because he didn't... Well, nothing's wrong with red hair or pasty, but sometimes the combinations don't blend as well, and he clearly did not have the look and mm. knew it. So he did have a brief kind of fling with with fame. You know, he put out a couple singles and stuff like that. But he started to pick up on the fact pretty quick that he just maybe wasn't the lead the lead look, the lead man. Oh, he just needed confidence. But he had the ability. He had the voice. He had the, the songwriting talents. And he got this insane idea <laughs> that he could write music in the 70s. So we're in the 70s now. Okay. He could write music, cool pop song, and instead of him getting out and performing it, he could just hire some interesting looking people to fake it for him and get out and and play the music and perform it live on his behalf. Complete the package. Because they would be far more appealing than he ever would as this, you know, little weird looking German guy. So his real big one is he created some songs and we're going over this briefly. I, I don't want to get in the weeds because we've got a whole yeah. chunk to get to. So if, if you know more, great, for, but this is not for that. Good for you. 1976, he formed a very famous, not so much in America, but everywhere else in the world, disco band named Boney M. So Boney, the word Boney, and then just the letter M. Mm-hmm. I don't even need to get into how he got that name and all that. But needless to say, Boney M was this package, right? They... They were all also black performers. This is really, I don't know what that was all about. And it's definitely a little cringy. Um, I don't know why he felt the need to do that. If it was just capitalizing on this German uh, Mm. notion of the other and stuff. That's a little stinky. It is very much so. But he got these people together. The women were actually singing. So so he brought them in the studio and they they would sing. But the Mm. male... He did all the vocals himself in the studio, and then he dropped his voice and processed it. So it was this really low, not like a Barry White, but just this kind of weird processed voice. Oh, yeah, I know the voice. And then he got a guy named Bobby Farrell, who was from Aruba, to come and be the voice, to pretend to be the voice. 
but he was just this cool looking dude with all the moves. He was a dancer and an entertainer. Oh. And he did do some singing, but that wasn't his thing. So he came on with the women and they did this act and they took the world by storm. The thing is that Frank didn't hide that fact. He was like, this is just the guy who's representing this is what we're the doing. songs that I wrote. Yeah. yeah. Even though Frank never, you know, let him sing on the album or anything like that. Huh. But Bobby would do like, you know, they would go do live performances and sometimes he would do a little bit of the live vocals. But huh. really, it was on the albums and stuff like that was not his voice. Weird. So we have this band that's kind of like half lip syncing, half performing okay this weird notion and it worked it worked amazing and they sold millions and millions and millions of records weird they had huge colossal success all over their big hit was daddy cool but the one that i have to stop and focus on because of you personally (laughs) you love this song would be rasputin Well, I love this song because I, every year, uh, draw Rasputin on the same day every year as a strange marker of my process yes. and growth. So I listen to this song at least once a year when, <laughs> when I make my drawing of Rasputin because I love specifically... No, I don't love Rasputin, but I love studying about Rasputin. Right. So anytime Rasputin is discussed, I'm all ears. And if you sing a song about him, I'm also all ears. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of their big hits. It's a really fun song. They dominated the charts. However, disco started to phase out. What? By the early 80s, it was over and done with. And Bobby, actually, this is an, another interesting reoccurring theme is... He kind of wanted to contribute a little bit more, felt like he was getting cut out, Mm -hmm. and just started to butt heads and really become a problem. And so Frank did what Frank does and said, you're out then. And what happened was Bobby was a little naive early on, maybe didn't read the contract all the way through, did not... He was not uh, able to receive any royalties. (gasps) And remember, this is a platinum selling, multi-million... I mean, this is a huge, huge act... Didn't get any royalties, didn't own his own image rights. Not only that, at the time he was living in this huge mansion, lost it because they also got his house in the contract (gasps) if he quit. And he ended up having to go move in with his mom in the Netherlands and go on welfare overnight. Like this guy went from being a multimillionaire in a mansion, worldwide success, to being on welfare, living in his mom's room. Whoa. All because Frank set up the contract to basically say, you go against me, you lose everything. Read those contracts. This is very important as the story goes on. Anyway, that's Frank Farian. Back to Millie Vanilli. So Rob and Fab get asked to go meet this big producer. They go out to Frank's studio, which is in a place called Rosbach, and they go there and it is insane. As Fab told it, like they'd never seen anything like it. It's just coated in gold records. They've got state-of-the-art equipment. It's like the best because Frank really was a big, big time producer in Germany. This wasn't, you know, he wasn't small fries here. So they go in and they're already really starstruck. Fab had no clue who this guy was, by the way. He just knew that they were getting invited to meet somebody about a possible record deal because 
he had seen them, heard them, yeah. and was interested in their talent. Well, it's not like they could just, like, Google it. Right, exactly. So Rob's the only one that speaks German, so he's doing all the talking. <gasps> oh, what but, language did Rob and Fab communicate in? I always wondered that, too. Fab said he took two years of German, but I wonder if Rob knew French or something like that. I never found out yeah. what they did. It might have been English, actually. Now no, that... no, because they hardly spoke English. Oh, that's true, too. I don't know. Good question. I, never... I would guess German because Fab went to Germany. So he probably spoke some German. I would German. guess too because what he did say is that although he didn't speak German, it was because they were speaking so quickly yeah, that yeah. he couldn't keep up. Okay, so, that makes more sense. Okay, we I figured it out. I bet it was it German. Anyway, he was reading the body language though. And essentially what happened is they get this contract. We'll, we'll kind of do a, a quick summary. They, they get this contract that is, yeah, we're going to give you like a three record deal. Yeah. And, you know, you'll be able to play your music and it's all going to be awesome. They give them a small advance. I've heard numbers of it about, you know, 1500 bucks or something like that. And we'll be in touch. They go out and they spend all their money on hair and clothes. <laughs> of course, Why not? They're models. And they're really getting their look down. They're super excited. What happens is, and I think this was by design, honestly, because everything Frank did was by design. Yes. I mean, everything. So I think there was a reason why there was this lag between. Because what ended up happening is they thought they were going to get this going really quickly. And it went on for months and months. And they needed money. They didn't have jobs because they thought that this was what's happening. So they kept asking for more money so that they could kind of pay their rent and, yeah. and you know, survive. Because at this time, as you mentioned earlier, they were both dirt poor. Yeah. I mean, they were working as what? A break dancer and part-time modeling. So <laughs> part-time <laughs> model. <laughs> so it wasn't going well. <laughs> the, the thing is, they started to really build up the bills. And as they, one does when they finally a teenager get called back or a young and, adult. Yeah. And they're like, all right, we're ready. We're ready for this to kind of go forward. They go into the studio and Frank plays them um, the instrumental version of this song called Girl, You Know It's True. Mm-hmm. And it's this hot track, right? It's awesome. And they're, they're thinking, this is going to be amazing. We can yeah. do awesome stuff with this. Mm-hmm. Then they go into another room to have another meeting. And Fab describes it. He said the body language. He said it was like everything was amazing. And then everything got really uncomfortable and dark. And all of a sudden, Rob... And Frank start arguing and yelling and everything else. Oh. Rob comes back and says, he's not going to let us do the vocals. The vocals are being done by somebody else. He wants us to just be the face because we're good looking. And he refused. So Frank said, fine, you want to play that, that game? Pay, Pay me, me back, back all my money right now. <gasps> what a monster. And by this point, they're in way too deep. So they're oh devastated gosh. because this is not what they thought they got into. Yeah, even if you're a few thousand in, de- in debt in the 80s, that's like, I don't know, 27,000 here <laughs> right, nowadays. Okay. Whatever it is, even even $2,000 when you're 18 now seems insurmountable. I can't imagine. Yeah, and this is crushing because it's not what they planned. Keep in mind when people think like, well, maybe they did. They didn't. These were young 20-something party guys. They just went to clubs all the time. They just wanted to like get a record deal and have fun. So they just found out they got screwed. And this is the beginning of that story. So they go back. They agree. We have no choice. We have to sign on. But 
being already super naive, they're even more naive because they're under the impression that all they have to do is this one song. They're going to do a music video to promote it, and then they'll be able to do the rest of the album themselves. So they thought. What they found out later was between the time of that first meeting and the next meeting, Frank had already gotten an entire album's worth of songs recorded with other musicians. Like, it was already a done deal. Were the other musicians just not as attractive? And he was like, well... Definitely. So let's spend a little time about the, the, the Milli Vanilli behind the scenes. Okay. Before I even get, though, into the, the players, yeah. one little note that is interesting that I did not know until researching for this episode. What? Girl, You Know It's True was actually a cover. <laughs> That's not uh, Frank's song. This was licensed out. Girl, You Know It's True was actually written by a group from Maryland called New Marks, and they had performed it, recorded it, and had kind of a minor little bit of airtime and stuff like that in the U.S. But it became huge in Germany, and that's where Frank heard it and said, I'm going to take this song and make this the single. I just think that's kind of interesting. So what happened is Frank starts building this track. He had like drum machine and stuff like that. He gets these two twin sisters who are living in Germany, but they're actually American. Their names are Linda and Jody Rocco to do the backup vocals. So they're already kind of building the track. Uh-huh. But then they need to have uh, some other people come on. Sure. There are three main players in the Milli Vanilli story. Okay. Brad Howell, who was... Okay, spoiler alert if you don't know Milli Vanilli. We're getting into it right now. Brad Howell played... Rob's real voice. So oh. he was Rob's voice. He was so he's this, the deeper voice. He was the, the keyboardist. He was a singer, a very successful singer. So he was already successful and they managed to play it off? Hugely successful. He performed huh. with, he, he was part of like Madonna, Cyndi Lauper, Cher, Tina Turner. And nobody recognized his voice right off? Maybe. But Frank had seen an interview with him and was like, whoa, this guy's got major talent. So he contacted him and said, here's what my plan is. You can't say anything. And Brad was like, "Uh, sure, why not? Because at this point, I think he was in his 40s. So it's Uh not like he was going to conquer the music world. So this was a chance for him to make some money. Sure. There was another guy named Charles Shaw, who's going to be very important in this story. Charles Shaw. Charles Shaw. Wait, isn't that the Trader Joe's wine brand? Maybe. I don't know. Robert Shaw, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. No, it's Charles Shaw. Okay. <laughs> Glad we got that out. Okay. Almost could have been a fun fact if we would have planned it. Fun fact! So, Charles, these are all Americans, by the way. So, Charles Shaw was Fab's voice, and he was a rapper and a singer, a little younger. And then there was a third guy named John Davis, and John Davis was another one of the singers. So the three of them basically came into the, the studio. Wait, John Davis, he went on to do corn, right? <laughs> yeah. Later went by Jonathan. He wanted to be taken seriously. <laughs> well, that's an interesting story. Uh, true. Is that when Frank first brought in John Davis, he was like... Bleh, bleh, bleh. <laughs> he just cried a lot about his parents. But anyway... <laughs> No. So these three came in, they filled out the song, mm-hmm. and this is the, the track that came out. They go to film a video in Germany, and partly in London, I think like that, for Girl You Know It's True. Okay, so question here. Farian didn't sing on this at all? No, he wrote the songs on this, no. On, so it was just song. yeah. songwriting. Okay. Well, not even for Except this, for really. Yeah, this was a cover. Song. But he, that was kind of his, his behind the scenes. Yeah. Okay. 
he was more the mastermind. He 100% was the mastermind yeah. and had this all planned out. And some of these players in this said this was all way planned, way before, uh, you know, Robin Fab had, like, come in. So and did he just, like, take an elevator to hell and sit at a long desk and write out his plan? His story's complicated, and it's going to be interesting at the end of this episode to reflect on okay. what his motivations were and, and what his his purposes in all of this. I don't feel good about how this ends because I know a lot about this story, but I have specifically not researched Farian. So very curious. Well, the video comes out for girl, you know, it's true. And it is Mm -hmm. instantly. Yeah. It's, um, it's like, it's right in your ear right now. Yep. And it is a massive hit. There you go. This is the beginning of (sighs) Millie Vanilli, the German pop act kind of dance pop act. And it does not take long until it's going to cross over an ex- success that that uh, Frank never had. No. With uh, Boney M is it gets to America, the ultimate dream. Yes. So Farian had attended this, intended for this to be kind of a small scale, like German club experience. Uh, you know, just like playing in clubs, making some money. He did not and could not have anticipated <laughs> the yeah. meteoric rise of <laughs> the situation. Insane. So, Girl You Know It's True reached number one in Germany, which led the group to sign with Arista Records. Yeah, oh, so this is 88. This is all happening, keeping the timeline together. It, yeah, it this is, is so short. This is like shooting a rocket to the moon and then the rocket immediately falling back to Earth. Like, and like crash landing and exploding. <laughs> it is so yes. fast. Yes. So their success was in large part due to their music videos. And like you said, go listen to our MTV episode, The Doi. Yeah. Uh, because they had they had the look, they had dance moves, they had fashion. And I think we do need to take just a moment here to talk about their look. So they... Oof, yeah. They... they in a, well, they wear a lot of different outfits, but you probably know them most for like having huge shoulder pads and like a weird jacket with lycra spandex pants. Yeah, if imagine if you're a Seinfeld fan, imagine Elaine wearing spandex uh, biker pants. <laughs> you know, the big shouldered yeah. like woman's blazer. Yeah. But they also had uh, these, this hair that was very signature. Like, think about how Brandy's hair was in Moesha. Yeah. It became like a very signature style that you linked directly to them. It was like really thin braids. And I did think it was interesting that that was already their look. I always thought that they were like manufactured, you know, in a way like this is the look we're going for. No, they went with their money and like got fresh, those braids freshly done. This is their style. Yeah, they spent all their money on this look. That is why they were hired though, is because they are so like beautiful yeah and uh the original album was called all or nothing yes that's what came out in germany but when arista picked it up and and signed them to an american contract that's when some song orders got shifted around and and that's when we get the album girl you know it's true which we would all know in america yeah and so when it was released they had five hits on the billboard hot 100 three number one singles uh, Baby Don't Forget My Number, Blame It on the Rain, Girl I'm Gonna Miss You. The album, Girl You Know It's True, went platinum to the sixth degree. <laughs> and this is as it's happening. This yes. isn't like 
20 years after the fact. No, we're talking about a two to three year time span. So six degree, six times platinum, if you prefer. It spent 41 weeks in the top 10 of the Billboard Top 200 and 78 weeks on the charts overall. They were, it was also certified as diamond in Canada. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They did a club MTV tour thing, and they were even on the bill with Echo and the Bunnymen for Summerfest 1989. What? Basically, this was a pressure cooker that was building. And of course, this whole time, both of them know that they're living a lie, and that cannot be, like, easy. They're... Their lives were imploding, like personally, and the the pressure of the success and the like intensity of of everybody's gaze turned upon them. Just they had no way of anticipating that this would happen to them, and they were in no way equipped to deal with the fallout. Yeah, because what had happened is after "Girl, You Know It's True," the single became a hit. Mm-hmm. They found out, oh, we don't get to sing the next song. They did go to him and say, all right, you know, we're ready. And and Frank said, no, uh, you're not singing at all. Here's your next single or whatever. And they then realized, oh, uh, this is our new reality and we can't get out of it because of the contract. It's like when Ursula took Ariel's voice. <gasps> it's just like that, Mariah. It's the exact story! So what had happened is they found themselves not just doing one single and performing on talk shows and stuff, but promoting an entire album that went, like you said, six times platinum. So they shot through the roof. They have more money than they could even think about. They asked Fab a bunch, like, how much money were you guys making? And he said, we never even asked. We just would ask for money and they'd give it to us. So, I mean, there were accounts that they were spending like 60 grand a month. on drugs, on alcohol, yeah, tons of women. I mean, these were guys in their 20s living the dream, but both of them would say, like, kind of living the dream. It came at a massive price. This is not a revisionist history. They really did the whole time, just kept waiting to get their chance to sing and prove to everybody that, like, we did this as a means to an end, but we're going to show you pretty soon. Aww. So they just wanted to kind of get through this and wait it out. <laughs> what the last thing they needed was more success, because with more success comes more people looking more at them. More scrutiny. Yep. Before we even get to the Grammy, though, some things had already started to happen. Because as they just started to skyrocket through the charts. Yeah. Some people started to ask some questions because they started doing interviews And if you've heard Millie Vanilli talk, they have very, especially at this time in the 80s, very thick accents. Rob has an extremely thick German accent and Fab has a very thick French accent. So to hear them saying, you know, call my number and in like perfect English, it was questionable. However, we're Cure fans. Yeah, we're Cure. Well, even more than that, ABBA fans. No, I'm joking. Um (laughs) It reminds me of that skit from Saturday Night Live with Horatio Sands playing Ozzy in the oh, recording yeah. studio. Exactly. <laughs> when they ask him what he wants for dinner and he's trying to explain it and they he's just mumbling. And then they say, Ozzy, sing your order. And he's like, I want a hamburger. <laughs> they can hear him crystal clear. So it is possible. Oh, hold side note. I saw a video of Ozzy watching them perform. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's all. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I like that mental image. <laughs> but starting in 89 already, people like this MTV executive, uh, Beth McCartney Miller, was already starting to question it. She was like, listen to these guys talk. There is no way they're actually singing this. Yeah. Nobody really cared, though, because they were just this colossal success. Yeah. That they were like, uh, whatever. The big, big one comes, and it actually didn't really have as big of an effect, but in hindsight, it did, is July 21st, 1989. So Club MTV, again, go back yep. to our MTV episode, downtown Julie Brown mm-hmm. is hosting this tour that's going on. And some of the people on the bill are Millie Vanilli, Tone Loke, things like that. Yeah. They're going through and they're playing all these cities, and they stop at Lake Compounds, Connecticut, of all places, to do this show. And while they are there, they're performing, and this is the first time this had ever happened. They're doing their thing, they're looking sexy with their spandex pants and dance (laughs) and all that. Just, Just spandex, white shorts. And when it gets to the chorus, as you heard in our intro, girl, you know it's true, it skips. And it skips hard. Girl, you know it's girl, you... And they are stuck. And they kind of panic. Yep. So uh, Rob runs off stage. He's panicked, right? Yep. Julie Brown's like, don't sweat it. Get back out there. They actually do... Finish the show. And At Julie... least he didn't do an Ashley Simpson and do that hoedown oh my dance. Gosh, the hoedown dance. Poor girl. I know. I feel so bad for her. But he goes back out. They perform. And Julie Brown said, like, nobody cared. Nobody even noticed. Nah. Because keep in mind, people weren't even thinking about this at the time. No. So they were like, cool. We saw Millie Vanilli. But there were people in the audience that weren't fans. They were like press people. Yep. And they, they totally saw what just happened. Yep. So there was the cracks were starting to happen. But that doesn't, like, that wouldn't have revealed that they weren't singing at all. It just meant that they weren't singing during the performance, which is believable. Because when you're dancing that hard, look at Britney Spears. You can't dance like that and not be like... <laughs> yeah, and keep in mind... Your vocals would be screwed. We go to Britney Spears or Ashley Simpson and all that. But this happened, as I've been told... The moment people realized, the music industry realized you could lip sync live, it has been happening. Of it has course. been happening since the beginning of that possibility. So this was, nobody cared. If you're dancing that much, yeah. this is just entertainment. Exactly. So that's why it wasn't really a big deal. Before I go on, I want to give you this week's fun fact. <laughs> what is it? This is a personal one that says zero to do with Millie Vanilli. <laughs> when I read where this show took place, uh-huh. Lake Compounds, Connecticut. Okay. That's where I saw my very first concert. Oh. My sister was living in Connecticut and I went out to, to see her. Okay. I was young. I would have been uh, 10, I think, at the time. Ooh, that's what I was going to guess. And so indulge me for a second, listeners. This is a personal story, but it's fun. My sister, I'm into, you know, rock and, and, and metal and stuff like that. My sister says, we're going to take you to Lake Compounds. It was like an amusement, an outdoor amusement park, which they also did concerts and stuff like Weird. that. And she said, there's some local bands playing. I want to take you. And I was like, awesome. I can't wait to go see. Uh-huh. So I go there. I walk in. Keep in mind, I had never been to an actual concert before. Sure. So I didn't know what merch tables were and all that. But I look over and there's an entire booth only selling Aerosmith stuff. And I thought to myself as a 10-year-old, wow, they really like Aerosmith. (laughs) I'm walking around. 
We go, we go to the stage. Everything's covered in white sheets. The first band comes out. Nobody knows who they are because they had not hit it big yet. And it was a band called the Black Crows. So they had just broke on MTV. So Mm -hmm. I still didn't realize. I was like, oh, this is just a local band. But the guy in front of me was this huge dude with the Aerosmith uh, winged circle logo with the A in the middle uh-huh. carved into his hairdo in front of me. Into his hairdo. So I asked my sister, I say, they're selling Aerosmith shirts and this guy's got Aerosmith like carved into his head. They really like Aerosmith out here. Hair don't. And she laughs at me and says, sure. And I watch the rest of this first thing. Then the sheets come off. I see the Aerosmith logo on the drums and I still am not putting it together. Okay. And a giant elevator comes down from the ceiling and it opens and Steven Tyler and two sexy nurses come out and he does this backflip into the microphone (laughs) and I see Aerosmith as my very first show in Lake Compounds, Connecticut, where Millie Vanilli first had their live mistake. Oh, there you go. Interesting. You're woven into the fabric of history. That's right. I am. That that's my degree to Millie Vanilli. My first concert was Michael Martin Murphy in a rodeo stadium. Okay. Okay. So even though the Lake Compounds event was embarrassing for them, uh-huh. it didn't really put a dent in you know their careers. No. Everybody just kind of moved on. What ended up happening though is just a few months later. In December of 89, the original singer Charles Shaw actually couldn't deal with the fact that he wasn't being credited and he was seeing monumental success because he wasn't getting royalties, of course. He just got that one lump sum. I think it was like 6,000 bucks to do all the the vocals and then go away and keep your mouth shut. And he spilled the beans and said, for this was the first time publicly, he said, I'm the voice. These guys are imposters. And a few people picked up on it. But Frank very quickly said, "Uh, you need to shut your mouth. Here's $150,000 if you retract your statement. And he did. Oh, I would would retract any statement. Somebody please give me $150,000 to retract (laughs) anything I've ever said. Okay, let's get back to this all falling apart. Oh, yeah. Millie Vanilli. They win the Grammy. As they both say... Everybody, even their manager said the one thing when they found out they were nominated, nobody wanted to win the Grammy because that would bring more attention to them than they could ever imagine. And they won it. Millie Vanilli. They absolutely won it. That had to be a sick feeling. And this is in like February or something like that. And they're like holy shit what are we gonna do and i know both of them struggled with drugs and addiction and i can see why as a like coping mechanism who could they turn to yeah they yeah they were definitely very alone at this time so the problem is rather than being like we need to figure a way out rob's like leaning into it hard and this is a weird story about millie vanilli that is true is they kind of started to believe the hype a little bit like we're doing this every day Fans adore us. When you see the footage, it's like Beatles crazy. It's like Twilight crazy. Their fans are insane. The girls are every night. There is no issues there. So they're starting to be like, this is just who we are. This is our act. And it comes to a head in March 1990. Time Magazine interview with Rob 
where he's feeling and he already had a very healthy ego to begin with of course i mean he's a male model he looks good he's got everything he wants in life he's rich and famous yep he gives this interview which they say was taken out of context but he still said it was that he was the new elvis Oh. And that they had more talent than Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney and all these. Okay. okay. You are putting a major target on your back when not only did you win the Grammy, but now you're proclaiming to be better than Elvis and the Beatles and everything yeah, else. Yeah, all the fans of those people just turned and looked at you with lasers. Yes. So you've got this massive pressure on them, these egos. All of this is starting to come to a head. And what happened is they said, look at us. We're awesome. And they went to Frank and they said, next album, we're singing. We did what you asked us to do. We've got the talent. It's time that you give us what we always asked for. And in a move that nobody saw coming, Frank said, uh, no, thanks. You're over. Holds a press conference on November 14th, 1990, publicly firing them and saying... Oh, by the way, these guys never sang on anything. He thought it was no big deal because he had already done it with Boney M. He was not prepared no. for an American reaction, which was much different. We got a whole country full of Karens and we're ready to come We are for ready, you. yes. And so this is when it all comes crashing down on Millie Vanilli. Yes. So the band or the, the duo did hold their own... Press conference in reaction. They sang. They danced. It's it's fine. Um, but once they had been exposed, the National Academy of Recording Artists, Arts and Sciences demanded that they return their Grammy. Sure. And they said, and I think they maybe did believe that they should give it back. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, who knows where they were at in their drug and their fame high at that point. Like, it's hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to guess. So they they did, and then the lawsuits came because we're in America, and this is like right around the time that we started suing for hot coffee. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is so many many lawsuits were filed against Arista Records as well as Robin Fab. Many of the lawsuits were group efforts to garner refunds for album sales. They were rolling over their records in public with steamrollers and stuff. Yeah, people were really... They big. were really intense about their Millie Vanilli backlash. Get a life, guys. <laughs> this is so embarrassing as Americans. I know. I'd be like, whoa, that's weird. And I'd like save just, it. I would move on. I would also be like, I really enjoyed that album when I had it. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, or I'm still going to listen to it. Who cares? Yes. This... And do you know why the... The lawsuits came in particular. No. Why America got pissed. Why? Here's an interesting little tidbit. Is that when the original record came out in Germany, Uh there was no credit to anybody. It just was Milli Vanilli. End of story. So they're... In America, it was credited as Rob and Fab doing the vocals. Ah. And this is where everybody felt duped. Is that they bought a record and on the liner notes it says... These guys were the singers, and mm. they weren't the singers, so they wanted their money back. So it seems that most of these like weird lawsuits were rejected, but some were settled as refunds, but they were like credited to the record company, just like, we'll give you the next album from our company that you want. <laughs> yeah. 
So whatever. But ultimately, a major settlement was approved to refund people who had attended concerts or bought albums. And this could include up to 10 million people. And they had a timeline, like a certain window of time to claim their refund. Yeah, this is important to know, too, is that the 6 million, you know, the platinum was just for the album. The singles. Yeah. I... I think it was like 70 million or something worldwide. That's worldwide, but these lawsuits are... I know, but what I'm saying is like, these lawsuits were for both singles and album sales. Yeah. And the sales were unbelievable. Yeah, but I don't think most people could be bothered. What was it, like 20 bucks? Yeah, Yeah, they're like, whatever. They just couldn't even be bothered to do that. But... To add insult to injury, in December of 1990, David Clayton sued the band for copyright infringement on the grounds that the song All or Nothing had used the melody from his song Spinning Wheel from his band Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I know that song well. Uh, I couldn't find the amount awarded, but he did win the lawsuit. But I had a lot of trouble finding out the details because I didn't know... Who specifically was sued? Uh, I think it was the record company. But it also, in other things, said the the band. But I think it went through the record company. I couldn't find if Farian was involved in that lawsuit. So I'm sure it's out there, but I couldn't be bothered at this point. Well, even with the lawsuits and everything else, Rob and Fab thought, well, maybe we can still salvage this. You know, maybe we can can do something there's that famous commercial what was it um the gum commercial where oh, they're yeah, yeah. doing opera and then they add that it says how long will this last and it's like until these guys learn how to sing so Aww. they were trying to like put on a happy face and, and roll with it they you know they were like whatever we're entertainers they handled it very very differently post like the the firing yeah uh fab was a little bit more level-headed he was hurt but he was like, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll figure it out. Rob was a sensitive soul with those blue eyes. And he said, uh, I can't deal with this. So he was really struggling. Well, also, I would say that Rob and Fab came from very different upbringings. And I could see where Fab was maybe more emotionally prepared. I don't know a great deal about his home life, but he did have family who was supportive. Whereas yeah. Rob was a little more unmoored. Yeah, I would agree. But... There was already a follow-up album in the works for Millie Vanilli, and what ended up happening is Frank said, well, I'm just going to spin this, of course, for my own benefit. And in 91, he took the singers, which were Brad Howell and John Davis, Mm -hmm. and he put them together and released the album The Moment of Truth under the name The Real Millie Vanilli. Oh. (laughs) I don't have numbers on how that did, but that was his move. Okay. And Robin Fab, the following year said, well, then we'll do our own thing as well. So they release an album called Robin Fab, and it's them doing the actual vocals, the singing, the rapping, all that kind of stuff. They got to go on Arsenio and all that. And, you know, honestly, I've heard it. uh, Fab can sing. I mean, he's not like the most amazing singer in the world, but he's got a voice. You don't need to be an amazing singer when you have a look. I mean, look at Madonna. Yeah, also, you can process the voice pretty well. You just need to have a a couple hooks and stuff like that, too. Exactly. It's pop music. It's not deep. No. But Rob really struggled through all this. He was kind of like, wasn't used to this work ethic, I think, of being in the actual studio. He was used to just partying and dancing. So they did release it, though. It comes out, and 
even with the promo tour and Arsenio and everything else, uh-huh. it sold, sold a total of 2,000 copies. Oh, That's it. no. I want to go buy 2,000 copies right now. Robin Fab's album sold 2,000 copies total. Oh. Keep in mind that just the first album um, sold 7 million copies. Oh. So this was not good. That makes my heart hurt. <laughs> and they were over and done with, and they went their own ways. You would think that's the end of the story, but of course it's not. No. It's not the end of the story because in 1997, your favorite channel of all time, VH1, (laughs) (laughs) created a new series that everybody could not get enough of. This expose series, Rise and Fall series called Behind the Music. That is a really good series. Very first episode, take a guess. Millie Vanilli. Millie Vanilli. Actually, a pretty good episode. I watched it this morning again. Uh And it just... it goes through their whole career, their rise and fall. And what ends up happening is this is 97. There's now all these people have kind of forgotten about Millie Vanilli. And there's this new interest in them again. Not necessarily a positive interest, but they're they're back on people's minds. And I think you, maybe with more empathy, too. And guess who comes calling? Who? Frank says, What? Hey, boys, how about we give it another go? I'm going to produce an album. You can do the vocals this time. Maybe it's like a peace offering of some sort, but what he a says, weird yep, I'm going to do this. So they start to record the album. The problem is that Rob at this point is like spiraled, entirely spiraled. Yeah. Keep in mind, he's been in and out of rehab, I think like 10 times or something yeah, at this he's point. he's not well. He's a mess. He's on drugs. He's drinking. He's gotten into robbery, assault. He Aww. got convicted three to six months in jail. But I kind of remember that. Yeah. But who comes to his help? Frank bails him out. Says, I will pay for you to go to rehab because he felt responsible. But wait, is also Frank the devil? Because I feel like that's something the devil would do. I feel like he is. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he bails him out, pays for his rehab, says fly back to Germany and just kind of get your stuff together and then we'll go promote the new album. It'll be great. What ends up happening is while in Germany in his hotel at oh. age 32, he is found dead. Ruled an accidental overdose, drugs and alcohol. This was not, he had already tried to kill himself once, by the way. We didn't even go over that. No. But he struggled hard. And here he was, this young, talented, oh. charismatic dude. He had just, just didn't have a shot. He flew way too close to the sun and burned out that way too quickly. It breaks my heart. Like his life story is just heartbreaking it really is and apparently it's going to be turned into a movie is what i heard it should be. it should it actually would be a really great movie fab uh you know picked himself up and started writing songs he performs still to this day he's got a, a really good voice his voice <laughs> gotten even better he looks cool too he's got like you yeah. know this long hair and surprise he yeah, aged well yeah he aged very well he's still got that jawline <laughs> but He's, he's really cool. I've listened to several interviews. He's got a good take on it all. He's got a good sense of humor. He just realized what happened. They got duped. They got taken advantage of, and yeah. they didn't read the fine print. Well, I think two things about Fab. First of all, I, I really do believe he probably has a better home life than we realize, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that that gave him like a foundation to come back from, like a support system. I don't think he, that Rob had 
any support system to fall back on. Yeah, Rob, I think, was felt completely abandoned. Alone, yeah. Yeah. And I think also, you know, there is something to be said for the fact that Fab didn't understand, and there was a little bit of grace in that. Like, he couldn't read the contract Mm -hmm. well. And there is something to, to be found there, like a little... A little something to hold on to and be like, well, I didn't even understand. And then I was contractually obligated. So you can spin yeah. a story in your head to to make it make sense. And by the time they did figure out what they were locked into, he said, you know, what are you going to do? You're in your young 20s. You were poor. Yeah. And now you're making a ton of money. You've got drugs and alcohol and rich and, and women and you're traveling the world and everybody adores you like you just kind of roll with it sure you know they had nothing else going on and this is just an insane story you know the lip syncing side of thing that still goes on today i mean i've heard that like oh, people yeah. have busted acdc you know lip singing so everybody like, does everybody it. does it even okay let's get into just not even being the real voice when i was researching i didn't even know this like jennifer lopez there's a ton of songs that's, that's not even her voice on the album. It's that's other people singing. Weird. She's just passing it off as herself. So I guess in in retrospect, uh, who cares? What's the big deal? Apparently, though, this is at a time of like, you know, uh, early 90s is singles and grunge and everybody's got to be really real and intense. And I think that the thing of this being fake and phony, uh, people were just yeah. really caught up in all this. and. Yeah, they just blew it's it goes really well with another episode we did, which was an episode on Pee Wee Herman, yep. where America has a, a knack for taking very small minor things and blowing it way out of proportion. Oh, my gosh. Because they yes. got nothing better to do with their day. We're still doing that every day. But this is a classic case. Yep. I think that this is a tragic story. I also think it's fascinating. And I think at the end of the day. They still were amazing, hardworking entertainers that put on a hell of a show. Yes. And yes, maybe the voice wasn't theirs, but boy, were they a force to be reckoned with. One of the things that, that was um, sad about all this was that due to the, the, the backlash, because keep in mind, places like in Living Color, the, you know, the sketch show, they're making fun of them. Yeah. Every late night talk oh. show was making fun of them. They were just yeah. the cultural punching bag that this put a rift between them for the first time in their lives. They'd known each other since they were young and they were inseparable. And all of a sudden they realized being seen together made it even worse. Oh no. So Rob in particular, just didn't want to be seen anymore together because you could identify him more. And they just kind of had a falling out. I feel like, honestly, if they'd just gotten different haircuts. Well, Rob did. And that behind the music, he's got that short blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. But like immediately, if they'd just gotten different haircuts, not put on shoulder pads and spandex, they could have been okay. Maybe like pop in some color contacts for Rob. But yeah, but it is kind of sad. And Fab says he's sure that, you know, everything's okay in the long run. But yeah, Rob just had a complicated go of it. But that is... That is the insane story. I know it's very well known, but I think it's really fun to talk about it. And maybe introduce it to a few new listeners that didn't know it that well. Yeah. And, you know, I was left with one lingering question. And that was, I mean, I suppose it's a bunch of questions in one. How was this not known? I don't really believe that the record company or all of these places where they were performing didn't know. Like, maybe the places they were performing didn't understand that they were putting through their sound system somebody else's voice, but they knew that they were putting through a recording. Yeah. So all of these sound guys 
knew it at very least that they were lip syncing whether it be to their own vocals or to somebody else's is beside the point they knew that these men were not performing live and then the record company how could they not know or the people who had been in the studio recording the original vocalists well okay they so knew. there is a very simple answer to all this money well, money for the record company. Like, who gives a shit who's the real voice? That doesn't mm-hmm. matter at all. It's it's just all money. But the people involved, the mixing engineers, the voices and all that, ex- this is Frank. No, remember what NDAs, happened? NDAs, like non-disclosure Absolutely. Yeah. You say anything, you are screwed. And yeah. he was notorious. People said he was very calm and collected and easygoing, but he made it crystal clear, you do not cross me. He and if you scary. do... You lose your mansion and you move in with your mom and go on welfare. That's what happens if you say something. Oh my gosh, he really scares me. Yeah, so it was pretty extreme. Um, even the band, there was uh, in 2014 uh, behind the scenes with uh, the o- Oprah Winfrey show did it with the mu- original musicians and they were asking them about all this. Yeah. And the band even said, we rehearsed all the music and we sounded amazing and we kept doing it to vocal tracks. And all of us couldn't wait to meet the singers and realize they were so good they didn't even need to rehearse. And it wasn't until they went on tour that they realized there were no singers. That's how they performed it. So, And they couldn't say a thing. Nobody could say anything. This was a very, very uh, well-kept secret, but it was destined to explode. Oh, yeah. And when yeah. it did, it was in grand fashion. Oh, and it... like ruined rob's life absolutely yeah it killed him i mean ultimately so he i don't think he would have ended up that way without no. without that situation so that's very sad there you go millie vanilli what a fascinating story it from really is. the late 80s yeah it really is like i remember as a kid kind of being aware as a cultural touchstone because it was made fun of on everything they even went on like cartoons later in their attempts to like change their image yeah it was like super mario brothers cartoon (laughs) Uh, but you know it is it's strange and it's sad but it's very fascinating yeah i'm going to always defend the underdog i will say they were absolutely manipulated they were naive and they were young yes of course they fully embraced the lifestyle once they had it what would you do if somebody is just throwing money and everything at you as a 20 something of course they did it so i don't hold that against them I hold everybody else accountable that should have known better. Frank. Frank. Everybody. I'm. They're all. They're all responsible. They all bear a burden, and I hope that they hold that on their heart when they think about what ended up happening in the long term. Yeah. This sad. is a really interesting story, and I'm glad we covered it. I, I really did enjoy talking about it. Yeah. This is a subject that I really couldn't get enough of. I listened to hours and hours and hours of. It was really interesting. Yeah. Other podcasts, interviews, shows, everything because. Even though it seems on the surface of, okay, A, B, and C, we all know the Millie Vanilli story, there's all these nuances that come up that you don't realize as, man, it's just fascinating. Well, and just understanding how people come from, like, what steps do you take to make some something that crazy happen? Mm-hmm. And when you kind of realize it's just a series of, like, blind blunders, like, yeah. what? Yeah, and and that's that, that, though. I would love to see the movie. I think it'd be cool. If it's properly cast, it could be amazing. Yeah. That's it. Well, that's what we got for you. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Yeah. Give Millie Vanilli a listen. I know that Arista Records pulled it. It's, I think, the only act to ever go multi-platinum that they removed them, deleted them from the catalog when this happened. Yeah. Ouch. Ouch is right. 
But, I mean, Sick if I find burn. their cassette when I'm out thrifting, of course I'm going to get it. Heck There's yeah. some jams, some tasty jams on that album. <laughs> tasty, jam. <laughs> tasty jams. Spread them on some on bread. Blame it on the rain, man. That's a good song. Yes. Anyway, all right. Well, we're going to watch some more videos. I hope you do, too. Check out uh, Patreon. We got some new stuff happening this month. And thank you to all of our new subscribers. We're very happy to have you join the party. Yeah, and if you're listening to this in real time, uh, be patient with our episodes for Patreon coming out at kind of various times. It will all come out in the month, but we've got a hectic schedule. We'll get you everything. We are having fun. That's at patreon.com slash lasergraves. And then if you want to just follow us, our normal sites are uh, lasergraves on Instagram. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can also go to lasergraves.com to catch any of our back episodes. We have a lot. We have a ton. So there's plenty to keep you busy on your commutes to work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're working out. Yeah. And um, if you've got some stormy weather and you can't make it to work, but you want to listen to our episode, just tell your boss. Just blame it on the rain. (laughs) All right. All right. See ya. <laughs> Bye.